0: Chapter 169 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson and I'm delighted to have you listening to this podcast, the first 35 episodes of which you can also now read if you want, in a booklet by the same title, available on Amazon. We're going to start looking at how Britain reacted to two perceived threats from abroad. One was immigration, which we'll be talking about this week. The other was competition in trade that we can pick up next week. There was in the late 19th century a surge in immigration, much of it from Eastern European Jews. Intensifying persecution by the Russian Empire, which at the time stretched as far west as Poland and the German border, drove some two million Jews abroad between 1880 and 1920. Poor Jews pouring into England, predominantly to London, became objects of fear and hatred even though, as the historian Cecil Bloom points out, they were never a majority of the immigrants, and the numbers of Jews living in Britain probably reached only 300,000 as late as 1914. That represents about 0.7% of the total population of 42 million. Poor immigrants tended to concentrate in places of high poverty and unemployment simply because the poor go to areas with low rents and where they find established communities of people like themselves. Many were destitute and ready to work for low wages, fuelling fears that they were threatening British jobs. Because many, though never as many as was claimed, were Jews that fanned anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism wasn't directed only at the poor. Wealthy Jews were targets too, accused of being leading figures in the exploitation of the population for gain. Many people saw the Boer War, for instance, as being fought by British soldiers for the gold interests in the Transvaal, and these, it was believed, were controlled by Jews. Anti-Jewish feeling was often shared by anti-imperialists, including many on the left. Since the left was also concerned with defending British workers against the supposed encroachment of immigrants on British jobs, that created a brand of left-wing anti-Semitism. Even Labour's first leader, Keir Hardy, talisman of the left though he is, said of the Boer War, What is the need of it? Simply that men living in Park Lane, some of whom are unable to speak the English tongue, may grow rich talking of foreign language speakers living in fashionable and expensive Park Lane is a veiled reference to rich Jews. However, there's no evidence that Hardy was a convinced anti-Semite. As the historian Ian Hernan, from whose book Antisemitism on the Left, that quotation came, explains, maybe his anti-Semitic conspiracy rant was an aberration, or simply tailored to his audience. Given his later position, as we shall see, it may well have been an aberration. There was also opposition to Jewish immigration from some associations and leading figures within the Jewish community itself. This may seem surprising, but it isn't uncommon. Immigrants settled in a country have worked hard to be assimilated and don't want to see new immigrants arriving at disturbing their arrangements, however worthy the newcomers may be and however urgent their need. A Jewish relief organisation, the London Board of Guardians, placed adverts in the East European Jewish press warning potential immigrants that assistance would only be available after six months of residence, and a similar policy was adopted in Manchester. Cecil Bloom quotes Nathan Joseph, the chief rabbi's brother-in-law and an important figure in the London Board of Guardians, as denouncing undesirable immigrants. He said, This class constitutes a grave danger to the Jewish community. Its members were always paupers and useless parasites. Many of these were never persecuted, but came with the persecuted. Dislike of such undesirables would lead others to backing restrictive legislation. Even the Jewish MP and former President of the Board of Guardians, Benjamin Cohen, refused to vote against a 1904 government bill to restrict immigration because, though he doubted it would succeed, he saw it as keeping criminal and other dissolute classes out of this country. Whatever the opinions within the Jewish community, it was outside it that the most anti-immigrant views were expressed. Major William Evans Gordon was the Conservative MP for Stepney in the poor East End of London, so he knew the area reasonably well. In his 1903 book, The Alien Immigrant, for which he did considerable research travelling in Eastern Europe, and in which he generally maintains an even-handed approach, he says that, East of Allgate, one walks into a foreign town. This is an enduring sentiment among opponents of immigration. The principal agent of Brexit in our own times, Nigel Farage, told the 2014 conference of his then-political party, UKIP, about an unpleasant experience he'd had on a train, at least as far as Grove Park Station in south-east London. It wasn't until after we got past Grove Park that I could actually hear English being audibly spoken in the carriage. Does that make me feel slightly awkward? Yes. Farage and Evans Gordon were made uncomfortable by the sense of being in a foreign land in their own country. All this, incidentally, puts me in mind of Shmuel Sunshine, recorded as Samuel Johnson by an immigration officer not prepared to deal with Jewish names. He was one of my great-grandfathers. He was from the city we now call Vilnius, and he called Vilna, in Lithuania, then part of the Russian Empire. He'd served seven years in the Tsar's army, and was a smart cookie. In 1902, he could see that war was coming with Japan, and guessed that Jews would be among the first called, and sent out there to fight in a bloody quarrel in which he had no stake. He travelled to London where, after the 6 months waiting period, I presume, he got some help from the Board of Guardians. In fact, he had his own resources since he was a skilled craftsman who could build the uppers of shoes, the part that doesn't include the sole, for people with deformed feet, either congenitally or through accident. Within a year, in 1903, he could send for his wife and two children to come and join him. The earliest memory of my grandmother, his daughter, was standing, aged three, on the quayside in St. Petersburg, holding her mother's hand in one of hers and her baby brother's potty in the other. They were waiting to travel to a country of which they knew nothing and whose language they didn't speak. The likes of Nigel Farage and of Evans Gordon might loathe that, but I can't help feeling that it requires a lot of courage to take that kind of plunge. Evans Gordon was the key figure behind the British Brothers League, which is seen by many historians as a forerun of the fascist movements that grew to prominence a couple of decades later. Evans Gordon himself wasn't entirely anti-Semitic, and even Heim Weizmann, the leading Zionist and later first president of Israel, felt that Jews tended to be too hard on him. Weizmann explained that in 1903, Britain had reached its limit of absorption of Jews, and he declared, The reaction against this absorption cannot be looked upon as anti-Semitism in the ordinary or vulgar sense of that word. It is a universal social and economic concomitant of Jewish immigration, and we cannot shake it off. Evans Gordon liked Zionist ideas, because while he sympathised with the need of Jews to get away from Russian persecution, he felt it would be far better that they go somewhere other than Britain, like the Jewish homeland Zionists wanted to set up in Palestine. The British Brothers League wasn't explicitly anti-Jewish. Its declared aim was simply to restrict all immigration by destitute or undesirable aliens. That, though, meant it had plenty of anti-Semitic members since, at the time, most such aliens were Jews. Nor was the concern about undesirable immigration restricted to the League. 52 Conservative MPs, led by Sir Howard Vincent, formed a Parliamentary Pauper Immigration Committee pressurising Lord Salisbury to act, especially after 1900 when both immigration and unemployment rose and they, naturally, linked the phenomenon. Not unlike in our own times, much of their agitation was based on fake news, such as the claim advanced by Conservative Central Office that between 1890 and 1900, 429,298 immigrants had arrived in Britain a figure so precise that it feels as though it must be right, though census returns show that it is a wild exaggeration. I don't want to suggest that immigrants had no defenders. The Secretary of the Jewish Board of Guardians spoke up for what he called the old English tradition which has ever granted the right of asylum to the oppressed. There were also non-Jewish supporters, notably leading liberals such as Charles Dilk, and the still relatively new Conservative MP, Winston Churchill a friend of Jews throughout his life. The Labour Representation Committee, forerunner of the Labour Party, opposed restrictive measures against immigration. Its key figure, Keir Hardie, now abandoned his previous anti-immigrant stance and embraced the cause, as did a young man soon to enter Parliament and making a reputation for himself in Labour circles, Ramsay MacDonald. Eventually, however, the government gave way to pressure for restrictions on immigration, and set up a parliamentary commission to investigate the issue in March 1902. It reported 30 months later, having heard some more tall stories. For instance, Evans Gordon told it, Not a day passes, but English families are ruthlessly turned out to make room for foreign invaders. This was, of course, another exaggeration. Interestingly, though, it again reflects attitudes that have survived to our days. In October 2022, Suella Braverman, who until her recent sacking was Home Secretary and therefore the Minister responsible for immigration control, told the House of Commons, The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. It seems that when it comes to rhetoric against immigration, the notion of resisting an invasion has proved remarkably persistent. In 1904, the British government, now headed by Balfour in succession to Salisbury, submitted a bill to Parliament to restrict immigration. It, however, included unenforceable provisions, most notably one to close so-called prohibited areas to further immigration, once they were deemed to have as many immigrants as they could cope with. This and other objectionable elements led to serious problems for the proposal, and in the end the government withdrew it. Then, in 1905, there was a tense by-election in the East London constituency of Mile End. Both the Conservative candidate who held the seat and his Liberal opponent had spoken firmly against open-door immigration a stand voters had seemed to favour. The main parties concluded that there was a groundswell of opinion against immigration in the electorate and decided to accommodate it. Something similar has been happening over the first quarter of the current century when both the Conservatives and Labour, whether in government or in opposition, have tended to adopt anti-immigrant positions to win backing among voters seen as unhappy with the scale of immigration. The result back then was that the Aliens Act of 1905, similar to the previous year's proposal but without the more controversial provisions, such as prohibited areas, was finally passed with support, or at least abstention, in both parties. Twelve Jewish MPs eventually split precisely into three groups, with four, all Conservatives, voting in favour, four abstaining, and four voting against. As it happens, the measure had been so watered down as to be pretty toothless. Charles Trevelyan, a Liberal and later Labour MP, who opposed the legislation, declared that the government had "...the magnificent record of having passed a bill which would keep out five dinghy loads of tatterdom His choice of words is amusing, given that Suella Braverman's war cry had been to prevent immigrants crossing the Channel in small boats, with which he had about as much success as Trevelyan describes. The next Liberal government instructed immigration officers to give immigrants the benefit of the doubt, making the act still more toothless. Evans Gordon was furious, but with immigration falling and the government dealing with other, more pressing concerns, his demands for more stringent restrictions got nowhere. Before we wrap up, let's think about how neutral the Act really was. Many of its backers saw it as genuinely directed against destitute immigrants or those that were undesirable for other reasons, such as criminals or the diseased. To others, however, its anti-Semitic intent was clear. Kenelm Digby, who sat on the Parliamentary Commission on Immigration, said that it, it is common ground that the object of this part of the Bill, on undesirables, is to control the immigration of Russian and Polish Jews into the East End of London. To this or not, the Act was a testament to the depth of aversion amongst many in Britain to immigration. That aversion is as powerful and widespread now as it was then. While the target of those times was Jews, today it's Muslims. At heart, though, the reaction is the same. Fear of people seen as different and a desire to keep them well away from one's own shores. Next week, we'll move on to the other great threat from abroad competition in trade, and the thrilling tale of how the response broke the Balfour government. Thanks for listening.